for us. Oh, there it is. As believers, such distrust of God is not to typify our lives at all. Rebellious Israel is said to be without faith. But we have come to believe and receive salvation on the basis of faith. Faith, the same kind of faith demonstrated by Joshua and Caleb, that should be continually apparent in our lives. If we are believers, then we are saved by faith, and therefore faith is to mark our lives. So we should not look at Israel and say, oh, you know, we're just like them. We're faithless all the time. We ought not to be. If you're a Christian, you should be living by faith because that's what Christians do. That should typify your life. We do not behave like faithless Israel, but we behave like faith-filled Joshua and Caleb. It is possible. And as Christians, if we're really believers, then we will overcome by God's Spirit. Questions about last week's lesson? Okay. One minor note. I just want to clarify something I said last week. We saw last week that one of the promises that God made on Israel's behalf was to send hornets to drive out the nations before them. And this comes from Exodus 23. Now, I describe this hornet promise as figurative. But I just want you to know there's some difference of opinion about this. Some say that God actually was promising literal hornets. He was sending actual hornets to harass and confuse Israel's enemies. The argument for this is based on the other promises all being literally fulfilled. God says, I'm going to send my angel before you, and he literally did that. God said he's going to send his terror on Israel's enemies, and he literally did that. So why should we expect the promise about hornets to suddenly be figurative? Certainly God was able to send hornets, so we ought not to dismiss a literal interpretation just because it's too fantastic. Matthew Henry, Puritan commentator, and John Calvin they only speak briefly about that verse in their commentaries, but they do take the hornets as literal. Others contend, though, that the hornets are indeed figurative. They see a parallel between God's promise of sending terror, which appears in the text right before the hornets, and the hornets themselves, the hornets being an image of the terror that God is going to send on Israel's enemies. Furthermore, those who take this position point out that hornets are never mentioned in the narrative of Israel's conquest. Now, that is an argument from silence, but it is noteworthy nonetheless. If God was really sending hornets, then why is it not mentioned as a miraculous provision in any of Israel's battles or conquests? John MacArthur's study Bible, as well as the pulpit commentary, just the commentaries that I examined, they take the hornets as figurative. So, just want you to know about that difference of opinion. Anyways, we come back to the tabernacle. We've looked at several pieces of the tabernacle already. Ark of the Covenant table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. Now, all of these objects were placed inside the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle building, in the holy place and the holy of holies. And these were extremely holy objects. We talked about them, but one thing I didn't mention last time, and I wanted to put it somewhere in my lesson today, just so that I wouldn't forget it, the tabernacle objects ones we talked about, those four, they were so holy that no layman, that is anybody besides a priest or Levite, no layman could touch them or even see them. And this included when Israel was traveling. Numbers 4 actually outlines how the priests 
were to cover the holy objects and the utensils of the tabernacle before giving them to the Levites to carry, lest the people of Israel see them and die. And this was no joke. You may remember that at one point in Israel's early history, the Ark of God is captured. It's captured by the Philistines, and through a set of um, miraculous circumstances, it's returned to Israel. But when it's returned, a number of Israelites die. And why is that? Because they looked into or looked upon the Ark of God. So it was a serious thing. These were extremely holy objects. God was making a, a, a huge point about their holiness, and he says you're not even allowed to see them. So this is helpful for when we sometimes see pictures depicting these events in the Bible. We'll try to be a little bit more accurate. You see this picture on the left? Well, hopefully you see this picture on the left. There's the Ark of the Covenant there, all uncovered. No, that's not as good as something like this. Yeah, covered in blue, just like the Bible says. Just keep that in mind. When they, these objects were to be shielded from the eyes of Israel, any of these holy objects from the tabernacle. Wanted to mention that. But we're talking about other parts of the tabernacle today. You'll want to use the handout for today's class as we go through four other elements of the tabernacle. We're going to be looking at the tabernacle curtains and structure. We're looking at the veil and the screen. Looking at the tabernacle court. And then we'll look at the bronze altar and its offerings. I'd hope that we could talk about the bronze laver, the anointing oil, and the priest garments, but I don't think we'll have time for that today. So that might be something that you can study on your own. Still, what we have is a lot to look at, but I think it's going to be really edifying. Why is it important to learn about these elements of the tabernacle? First of all, it helps us understand the rest of the scriptures better. Because the Bible makes reference to these pieces of the tabernacle and, and their counterparts in the temple, and when we don't really know what they are or what they are about, we miss out on what the Bible's talking about. So it helps us understand the rest of the scriptures better. Second of all, God ordered the parts of the tabernacle worship very purposefully, and it expressed spiritual truth related to God and man. We've seen this in part already. We don't want to miss what God is saying about himself in the tabernacle. And third, just as all the Old Testament ultimately points to Christ, we want to see how the different elements of tabernacle worship also point to and find superior fulfillment in Jesus. In doing this, we don't want to overinterpret. We don't want to say things mean things that we don't necessarily know if that's what they mean. But where there's good evidence of a connection, we want to make that inference. So, valuable for us to look at the tabernacle. Like two weeks ago, please follow along in the chart, fill in the chart. We're going to look at the description of each of these elements from the Bible. Then we'll examine the object's practical purpose, what that object says about God, and then how it connects to Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word is great. Your tabernacle is awesome. And yet, what's displayed in Jesus is even more awesome. I pray that you would help me to be able to explain this now. Help us to understand and help us to be in awe of you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by talking about the structure of the tabernacle itself. Please open your Bibles to Exodus 26. Exodus 26. This is a long section. 
Actually, this only goes up to verse 31. Verses 1 to 31, we're not going to read this section, just for the sake of time. But I want you to know it's there, because I'm going to summarize the description of the tabernacle building, and it all comes from these first 31 verses in chapter 26. So again, use your handout. Follow along as I describe and display some text here of the description of the tabernacle. The tabernacle building, the transportable sanctuary tent of God, was to be covered by several layers of material. Four layers, actually. And we're going to describe these four layers starting from the innermost layer. The first layer of the tabernacle is composed of ten linked cloth curtains that are made from blue, purple, scarlet material, or blue, purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. We see this described in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 26. On these cloth curtains, made from these different colors and, and, the, and the linen, there are to be cherubim. We talked about the cherubim last time. Remember, those are those fantastic celestial creatures. They're to be displayed on, this cloth, on these cloth curtains. In terms of size, each curtain is 28 cubits by 4 cubits each or about 42 feet by 6 feet. So very long in one direction, and they all get linked together. They're linked by 50 blue cloth loops and 50 gold clasps. So loops and clasps, linking all these curtains together, and when you join them all, you get a cloth rectangle of about 42 feet by 60 feet. This is going to be a covering, the first layer of covering for the tabernacle. Now the second layer, laid on top of the first, is composed of 11 linked curtains of goat's hair. The second layer is goat's hair, and we see this described in verses 7 to 13. Now, the goats in the Middle East, in Asia Minor at that time, and probably today, had long, fine, and beautiful hair. And therefore, these goats were often shorn and their hair made into garments. It was beautiful. So what we have here are goat hair curtains. These curtains are slightly larger than those of the first layer, 30 cubits by 4 cubits, or about 45 feet by 6 feet, a couple of feet longer on one side. And these curtains were linked, again, with 50 loops, and this time 50 bronze clasps, and they completely covered the first layer. Part of the second layer hung over the front and back of the tabernacle, and the slightly longer sides completely overlapped the first layer of curtains. So completely covering the first layer. So the first layer of cloth, these um, blue, purple, scarlet material, and fine twisted linen with the cherubim, the second layer of goat's hair. The third layer is of ram skins dyed red. Now the third and fourth layers are described very briefly in verse 14. It just says, and then put this on top and put that on top. The third layer is ram skins dyed red. ESV translates it tanned ram skins. And one source I read said that the skins themselves were actually red. You didn't have to dye them red. They were red. Or whatever it is, you have red or tanned skin. Not hair here. We're talking about skins. This is going to go on the top of those other two layers. And then the fourth layer, also in verse 14, porpoise skins. Okay, what's a porpoise? Yeah, it's similar to a dolphin. Porpoise is actually a certain kind of uh, sea mammal, 
akin to killer whales. Killer whales are part of the porpoise group. I don't think dolphins are, but they're very similar. Was God telling Israel to make a layer of covering out of whale skins? Well, that's the way the New American Standard translates it, though the word is variously translated. The ESV translates this covering as goat skins. NIV translates it as durable leather. The King James Version translates it as badger skins. Other translations give us sea cow skins or violet skins. So we're not exactly sure what this fourth layer was. But whatever it was, it appeared to be dark and strong. And it would go on top. It was the fourth layer. So we got a bunch of layers. Cloth, hair, skin, and what's going to hold all of this up? Well, that comes next in the text. God instructs there to be a series of wooden boards. Vertical boards. And each board is to be made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Each board is 10 cubits by one and a half cubits, or 15 feet tall by about one and three quarters feet wide. A bunch of boards here, very tall boards. The north and south sides of the tabernacle are to have 20 boards each. Uh, I'll, I'll show you a picture in just a little bit, but you have a rectangle. Imagine the tabernacle being like this rectangle. Here's the entrance on the east side. So on the, the two long sides, you have 20 boards each. And then on the west side, the back end of the tabernacle, you have six regular boards and two special corner boards, so eight on that side. These boards were joined together with mortise and tenon joints and silver sockets. Each set of boards also had five horizontal bars. So we've got the vertical boards going up and bars going left and right. These bars were also made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. The middle bar was to be long enough to pass from end to end on its side. And these bars passed through a series of gold rings attached to the vertical boards. So we have a bunch of acacia boards covered with gold going up, and then bars going left and right, also of acacia and covered with gold. So what we have here is the whole description of the tabernacle structure. The curtains, the coverings, the boards, and the bars. What would this have looked like? Well, the visual interpretations vary a little bit. If we talk about the inside of the tabernacle, I'm giving you a couple different pictures here, artistic interpretations today. Some see the golden boards forming a golden wall, that they are right next to each other, that they fit right into each other, and so you essentially have a golden wall on each side of the tabernacle. So you, the, the beautiful first layer of curtains is only displayed as a ceiling. So in the, in the top right picture, you can see a little bit that the walls are simply gold, and the first covering would only be seen through the ceiling. We'll talk about the, uh, the veil and screen a little bit later. So that's one way of seeing the inside. Others see the boards being more spread apart, the boards and bars forming like a golden cage you can see that more in the top left example. And then the first layer of covering, the beautiful first layer of covering, would come through the openings in the bars and boards, as well as the ceiling. But anyways, you have lots of gold on the inside, and then that first layer of curtains coming through. And then on the outside, you can see the different layers of coverings uh, kind of spread apart in the bottom left picture, and then 
there's a model of the tabernacle with all the coverings, one on top of the other. From the outside, you would only see that fourth layer, or mostly see that fourth layer, maybe a little bit of the layers underneath, but you would not see at all the first layer. You would only see the skins on top, and perhaps maybe a little bit of the, the goat's hair, but you wouldn't see that first layer at all from the outside. And certainly you couldn't see the gold pillars or boards from the outside either. Anyways, there's a number of different pictures of the tabernacle building itself to give you an idea. In terms of the shape of the tabernacle, you can see here that most see the tabernacle as a box with a slightly fanned out set of sides to account for the tent pegs that would have held the coverings, the four coverings on top, in place. Now, others are really strict with the box shape. There's no fanning out at all. It's just a box, rectangle. And some have it triangular so that it actually comes to a point at the top. That's the way Answers in Genesis depicts it uh, in their handout, and I'm not really sure why, <laughs> because that would require some other structural components that are not mentioned in the text. You need, like, something to stick up all the way. I don't think it looked like that. Probably something like I've displayed in these pictures here. Anyways, so here is our tabernacle, tabernacle building. What is the purpose of this structure? Filling in our, the other columns in our chart, what's the practical purpose? or purposes of this building. Why build it this way? Eric. That's exactly right. Yeah, this is very important. The tabernacle building provided a separate place for the holy objects, as well as a separate place to meet with a holy God. That's one of the important purposes of the tabernacle. Anything else about the way this is built that illustrates a practical purpose? Yeah, Dwayne. Exactly. It had to be portable, but it also had to be strong. So the way it was put together, you could, uh, you could take down and put up these sets of coverings and these bars and boards so that when it was up, it wouldn't fall down. But it could be taken down so that as Israel was traveling through the wilderness and when it reached the promised land, God's dwelling place could move. So those are certainly two practical purposes of this building. Yeah, Eric. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, too. When we think about those outer coverings of the tabernacle, they certainly seem a lot tougher than the, in, the inner um, coverings of the tabernacle. So that outer covering, yeah, Eric, you're probably right, probably waterproof or definitely more resistant to the elements than would have, what would have been on the inside. And that's part of keeping this structure both transportable and durable. That's a good point, Eric. So we see practical purposes of this building, but thinking about how it's built, what does it say about God? What's one thing? Eric? Yeah, his presence, right? The reason that you have this building is because God is with you. 
God actually goes with your camp. He dwells right in the midst of it. He has a building. He has a dwelling place. It shows that God is with his people. What else does it show us? Danny. Yeah, that's a good point, Danny. We'll talk more about having to come to God in a specific way um, throughout the, today's class, but even though he's with his people, there's still separation. God still has to be met in a separate building, and there, there's a specific way you come into that building. So we're not losing sight of God's holiness. He dwells with his people, but he's still that separate holy God. And, of course, we also see the Lord's majesty once again. The inner portion of this tabernacle, hopefully you've seen that, as you, as you actually get to the inside, it becomes beautiful and glorious. The outside, it, it's more about practical use. But inside, that's where you see the beautiful cherubim on the covering, on the curtain. And that's where you see the gold. And that's where you see the red, the blue, the purple, and the scarlet material. All these rich colors and expensive dyes. They're all on display inside the tabernacle. Because God is glorious. And so his building is going to, be, is going to look glorious as far as man is, or uh, with the materials that man is able to make as God instructs. Perhaps we could say more, but certainly we can see with the tabernacle building itself, God was emphasizing, I am with you, but I am holy, and I am glorious. We'll talk, the last category, how does it connect to Christ? I'm actually going to hold off on that right now until we talk about the other, the next two elements of the tabernacle, because the arrangement of the tabernacle building with the veil and the screen and the court all have to do with the same connection to Jesus. But we'll come back to that one. Leave it blank for now. So we have the tabernacle building. But this building is going to be arranged in a certain way with specific dividers. Let's talk now about the veil and the screen of the tabernacle. This also appears in chapter 26, and this time we will, we will read the text. This is verses 31 to 37. Exodus 26, verses 31 to 37. Follow along with me. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold and four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps, and you shall bring in the Ark of the Testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Okay, so we've got a veil and a screen here. Let's make some observations. How is the veil like the inner set of curtains that we discussed with the tabernacle building? 
Yeah, Emma. That's exactly right. It's basically the same, made out of the same material, and also is to display cherubim. Blue, purple, scarlet material, fine twisted linen. Has cherubim and is set on four acacia pillars overlaid with gold. These pillars have golden hooks. Each pillar has one hook and one socket of silver. Silver, so total of four. Gold hooks, silver sockets. Now we're told directly the purpose of this veil. What's the purpose? What is it partition? The holy of holies from the holy place. Now the whole tabernacle building is holy, but the most holy place is the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And as you know from other scriptures, no man could go into that except for the priest once a year. This veil is going to serve as a partition between the holy place, that is the rest of the tabernacle, and the most holy place, the holy of holies. Now, as an aside, we're told where the rest of the holy objects ought to be arranged in the holy place. The ark goes into the holy of holies, but the table of the showbread, if you think about the tabernacle, again, like this, like a rectangle, the table of the showbread is going to go on the north side of the tabernacle, and opposite it, the lampstand on the south side. Not mentioned here, but remember the altar of incense also is in the holy place. Where does the altar of incense go? Just outside the veil, right. So in the holy place, right in front of the veil. So if this is the holy of holy place and the veil right here, the altar of incense would be right in front of that. Perhaps between or, or close to between the table and the lampstand. So we have the veil, but we're also told about a screen here. What's different about the screen versus the veil? They're very similar. There's one difference. What does the screen not feature? No cherubim. No cherubim on the screen, though it is made of that beautiful blue, purple, scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. No cherubim, and this time five pillars, and this would go right at the entrance of the tabernacle. Again, the pillars are made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, and we have five gold hooks and bronze sockets this time. Not silver, but bronze. Now from what we know from other scriptures, how often did someone pass through the screen that is the entrance to go into the holy place? How often? What's that shape? The veil, once a year. That would be the entrance into the Holy of Holies. What about the screen? Yeah, Rob. Yeah. Definitely at least once a week. It would, definitely, it would be daily. Because it's not just the showbread in there, but also the altar of incense, which was required to be burned twice a day. And also the lampstand had to be maintained. So daily, priests and Levites would go into the holy place, but into the most holy place only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Very good. Okay, so we have a description. We have a description of um, these two items in the tabernacle, and we know their practical purpose. It's told us in the text. They're serving as dividers. The veil divides the holy of holies from the holy place, and the screen divides the holy place from the rest of the tabernacle complex. It's the entrance. Yeah, Eric. 
Okay. Nice. That's a good point. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for mentioning that. I'll repeat the comment. When we're talking about the gold and the silver and the bronze of the tabernacle, certainly as you get closer to the inside, the, the holiest, holiest place in the tabernacle, you see more gold. And there's also silver inside and bronze more on the outside. We'll see in the tabernacle complex, it all features bronze. But as you said, Eric, it's not just the, the valuableness and the luster of the, these metals, but it's the, the durability, that gold doesn't tarnish. Silver tarnishes somewhat, but bronze can tarnish very easily. And that also is um, connected to God in that um, not only is God beautiful and glorious, but we're talking about um, a glory that does not fade. So it's appropriate that gold would be used inside this tabernacle and silver to a lesser extent. But we know the practical purpose. We can fill that in the chart. The practical purpose of these is to serve as dividers. But what do they tell us about God? The veil and screen. Yeah, Roy. Yeah. So, like we saw already, yeah, God's presence. But because he's presence, he needs to dwell separate. Because he's holy. It's a physical reminder, the set-apartness of God on two levels. It was possible to come into God's most holy presence, but it had to be done in a particular way. Once a year, or you would die. And there was a more limited way to come near God's presence, but there still was a veil. There still was a veil. God's present with his people. And these dividers are needed because he is present. God's sanctuary must be protected from what is unclean. And those who are unclean, they need protection from God's holiness. And we also see again that God is majestic because of these beauti the beauty of the veil and the screen. So God emphasizes for us his majesty, his holiness, and his presence. What does it have to do with Jesus? Again, we'll come back to that. Now we're talking about the setup of the tabernacle structure. We also need to talk about the tabernacle court. This comes in the next chapter of Exodus, Exodus 27, verses 9 to 19. We're again not going to read this section, but I'll summarize with a description. But it does appear, starting in verse 9 in chapter 27. What was the court? We see pictures there. Top right and bottom, bottom right. What we have here is a series of pillars and hangings that wall in a courtyard area of 100 cubits by 50 cubits by 5 cubits, or 150 feet long by 75 feet wide and 7.5 feet tall, approximately. The hangings of the court are to be made of fine twisted linen, probably white. The material for the pillars, the pillars of this court, are not listed, though it's probably acacia wood, as are all the other pillars of the tabernacle, though these apparently are not overlaid with gold. These pillars feature bronze sockets and silver hooks, and these are how the linens hang on the pillars. There are 20 pillars on the north and south sides of the court, and 10 pillars on the west side, and a special setup around the east side of the court, 
where the entrance would be. The gate of the court is flanked by two sections of three pillars and 15 cubits of hangings, while the entrance itself is four pillars and a screen of 20 cubits made of blue, purple, and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. In other words, just like the screen of the tabernacle. Same material, same look. The tent pegs for the tabernacle, or for the, uh, the hangings on the outside of the tabernacle, and even probably for the tabernacle building itself, the tent pegs are described here as being made of bronze, along with the other utensils for the outside of the tabernacle. Now, what objects are in the outer court? You can see a little bit there. But uh, two main objects, the bronze altar, you can see kind of in the bottom right of that top picture, the bronze altar, that's where the sacrifice would be, and the bronze laver positioned between the tabernacle and the altar. Those would be on the outside. Now, who's allowed in the outer court? Well, the priests and the Levites, for sure, because they need to do the work of the tabernacle. But also, ceremonially clean Israelites. This is where the worshipers would be. Laymen were by no means allowed to enter the tabernacle. But Israelites were to come into the tabernacle court to present their offerings. And they had to do this soberly. And they had to come through the one gate. They had to come through the one gate on the, the side of the tabernacle complex. And the laymen were not allowed to pitch their tents close to the tabernacle or its court. Instead, the Levites were to surround the tabernacle with their dwelling places in order to protect it. But it was allowed and needful for Israelite worshipers to come into the tabernacle court to present their offerings. Well, let's interpret now. Maybe I've just given that away a little bit. But what practical purpose or purposes did the outer court or did the court of the tabernacle serve? What's one of the functions of this court? Yeah, it allows for laymen to actually bring their sacrifices in, and it allows a place for the sacrifices to be offered. When we talk about the animal offerings, they're all taking place in this court. They're not happening inside the tabernacle. So the incense and, and parts of the offerings would have um, certain actions that take place inside the tabernacle. The animal sacrifices themselves took place outside, took place in the court. And the Israelite worshipers would be bringing their animals there. So it would be like a, kind of like a transition zone where the worshiper brings his animal, the animal is offered there. And the priest takes care of it after that. What else is a function of this court? Yeah, Eric. Well, definitely washing is going to be um, part of it as well. A laver, especially for the priest, that's going to be important for him to wash. Um, I'm not sure in particular uh, what other kind of washings might take place there. But the laver, for sure. What else? Yeah, Roy. Exactly. Right. Very good, Roy. This is like a buffer zone. This is like a, another layer of protection for God's holy place and protection from people of God's holiness. You couldn't just stroll in casually into God's court. No, there was a big layer of, or there was a, a wall of hangings and pillars so that that wouldn't happen. You could come near God's presence, even as a layman, but you couldn't do it casually. It had to be done soberly. But you couldn't come all the way. 
So we see this court functions like a buffer zone, but also a zone for laymen to worship. And it's also where the, the sacrifices are offered. Now, what does this setup show us about God? Once again, we see what? We see the holiness of God, right? There needs to be a buffer zone to his holiness. And those who enter that zone must still do it carefully and with total ceremonial cleanness. We see God is majestic. There's a beautiful gate entrance and clean linen all surrounding his tabernacle. We do see that God is again present with his people. They can come near to him. Even the layman can come near, but not all the way. They could not enter the tabernacle or the holy place. But amazingly, they could come close. But the fact that they couldn't come all the way also shows us that man needs a mediator. Man needs a God-ordained mediator who could go all the way to God. God is with his people, but his presence is not directly accessible to all. The Israelites would have to trust their mediators ordained by God to do what they could not do for themselves. Yeah, Roy. Yeah, that's, a, that's another good point. We do see the, the wisdom of God in just order, that there is a very specific order about how his tabernacle should be arranged and how worship in the tabernacle is going to happen. And part of the arrangement of the tabernacle court goes along with that. So yeah, that's a good point, Roy. Certainly we see that God is majestic, he's holy, he's present, and that man requires God's mediator to go where man cannot ultimately go. Now, We've talked about these three items. What does the tabernacle and its veil and its screen and its court, what do all those things have to do with Christ? Yeah, Rob. That is true. We are talking about a picture, a shadow of Christ. But in what way? Yeah, yeah. So we talked about this a little bit with the Ark of the Covenant already, but we're talking about a much greater manifestation of God's presence. God says, I will dwell with you, but there has to be certain restrictions. But in Jesus, he dwelt with us in a much greater way, and we had total access to Jesus. Everyone could, or he lived with us. He, uh, he was among us. He was in human flesh. Were you going to say something else, Daniel? That's a great parallel, uh, to repeat your comment. John 1.14, apparently the word, where it says the word dwelt among us literally means to pitch his tent among us. And of course that sounds just like the tabernacle. But this is a much greater tabernacle. Jesus himself, the tabernacle dwelling among us. And then there's something that happens in Jesus' lifetime, in his ministry, 
that should directly link us to the tabernacle, or what would have been at that time the temple, which was arranged the same way, or similarly, to the tabernacle. Yeah, Eric. Exactly. What was significant about the veil being torn in two at Jesus' death? Yeah. This would have been so strange to all Jewish worshipers to hear about this or to know about this. That Wait, the Holy of Holies is open? I mean, if you saw the Holy of Holies open, that means you could see the Ark of the Covenant. That was a big no-no. That would mean that you would die. But with Jesus' death, it says that the veil was torn in two. So certainly we're talking about um, Christ being a greater manifestation of God's presence. He tabernacled among us. But most significantly is that the veil of the, the temple, first prefigured in the tabernacle, was torn in two. Mark 15 Verses 37 to 38 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Of course, top to bottom being significant because that means that man didn't do it. It was done by God. God tore open the way. Fully cleansed by, or let me say this, Christ through his sacrifice on the cross secures for his people direct and continual access into God's most holy place. And fully cleansed by Christ's work, we not only get to experience intimate fellowship with God now, but we have the surest and most holy hope of a dwelling of dwelling in God's great and holy presence forever. Hebrews 6, 19-20 says this, speaking about Abraham's hope, the hope of blessing through God's unilateral covenant, the author says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There was no entering the most holy place before, except with strict limitations and sacrifice. But Christ, the once for all sacrifice, was so great that it forever and once for all carried his people inside the veil. We no longer have to remain at a distance because of the holiness of God and our own uncleanness. Christ has made us holy with his own holiness. Now, does this mean that God ceases to be holy? Far from it. We must not lose our holy fear or reverence for God. But Christ's work gives us the confidence through our justification, through our positional sanctification that is being um, made holy, declared holy once for all. We have the confidence to approach God in the most intimate way as a loving father. Roy, you were going to say something? We have the, to repeat your comment, we, in Christ, we have the unique privilege to do what only the high priest could do. And yet, even better than what the high priest could do. Because he could only come in for a short time, once a year. And he had to come in with incense, and he had to come in with blood. But Jesus, his sacrifice was so much better that not only can we, or we can come in, and all of those things have already been provided. I was going to say one other thing. The tabernacle showed us that God has always purposed this. God had always purposed for man to be brought into God's most intimate 
presence. But how could that be? We saw from the tabernacle God is holy. How could he bring us into his most holy place? God, through a perfect sacrifice. Through his son. Through the sacrifice of God's son himself. God had always purposed to provide a way into his intimate presence, and Christ is the way. Questions about these, or other comments about these first three elements? Yeah, Danny. Just repeat your comment briefly. So you mentioned that text from Revelation that says that the dwelling place of God is among men, or the tabernacle of God is among men. And we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth. What we have in Christ with the veil being torn in two is something that gives us a a beautiful reality in the present, but it also points to something that hasn't happened yet. We do have intimate fellowship with God. We're brought into his most holy presence, and yet, in in another way, we haven't yet done that. We will be in God's most holy presence. When, we, when we're there with him in heaven and when he comes back to the earth and when he establishes his kingdom and when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And that will be, just as Danny was reading, a place without crying or pain or, or sadness. And there won't even be any light because the Lamb of God is the lamp. And he lights up everything. God himself, if you're a believer, think about this wonderful truth. God himself has secured for you the most intimate dwelling place with him. That seems so unthinkable when you think about, or that, that seemed so um, hard to understand when just looking at the tabernacle. It's like, wait, God's separate, God's separate, God's separate. You can't come near, you can't come that near. He says, I've provided a way for you to come as near as my, as to exactly where I am. It's amazing. We have to move on because we need to talk about one more thing, but. The the tabernacle, the veil, the court all pointed to Jesus. Hold that to the end, Rob. Speaking of sacrifices, there's one other element of the tabernacle I want to look at, and that is the bronze altar. So now going back to the beginning of chapter 27, the bronze altar. Let's read that. Verses 1 to 8, you get the description of the altar. We're going to talk about it, and we'll also talk briefly about the sacrifices that are made on the altar. Verse 1, chapter 27. And you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pails for removing its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating of network, of network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar, so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You should make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the rings, so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You should make it hollow with planks, as it was shown you in the mountain, so they shall make it. Okay, briefly observe the description of this altar. Altar is made out of acacia wood, but overlaid with what? Bronze, not gold, bronze. Everything in the, in the court is bronze, and this is in the court. This is kind of a big altar, five cubits by five cubits by three cubits, or about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, and four and a half feet tall. It has horns on its four corners, 
all's utensils, the pail for removing ashes, the shovels, the, ba the basins, the forks, the fire pans, all to be made of bronze. Features a ledge and a grating network. That network, network is said to be or to reach halfway up the altar. And it has four bronze rings through which acacia wood poles overlaid with bronze were to be inserted. And this altar is to be hollow. And that's a good thing. Why? Because it's going to be really heavy otherwise. And this was to be carried by humans. So it needs to be hollow. What did this altar look like? Well, I've given you a number of pictures over here. Uh, sorry, that one's a little bit dark. Actually, some different interpretations of it, of what it looked like. Uh, what did the network look like? And uh, how did you remove the ashes from the altar? People have different ideas about what that would have looked like. Was it, was it raised? Did it have like a, a space underneath it? You can see the bottom right one doesn't really have a space underneath it. So some different interpretations of that. Interestingly enough, this altar was not the only altar that God said that they could offer sacrifices on. It was to be the main altar, but in Exodus 20, we hear some provisions about God of how they can create other altars. And if they do, it has to be of earthworks, and if it's made of stone, it can't be with cut tools, etc. So this wasn't the only altar Israel could use, but it was to be the main altar, and certainly no altar would be allowed to be used without the priest doing the sacrifice. The priest had to be the one to administer the sacrifice Otherwise, it would not be accepted by God. Of course, Israel violated that rule many, many, many times. What kind of offerings were to be made on this altar? Well, there is a topic I wish we could do a whole Sunday school lesson on. Because God says a lot about his offerings. And there's a lot to unravel there. But we can't talk about it right now. What I've chosen to do instead is on the back of the chart that you have, on the back of your handout, there's another chart. It's my labor of love. I went through what the Bible says about five different kinds of sacrifices, the main offerings that Israel was commanded to give. And I tried to give you the information, the main information about each of those offerings. The five main offerings were the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. I don't have time to go through all the details right now, but I encourage you to look at those after class. I think you'll notice some pretty interesting things. But notice a few things just from glancing at this handout. First of all, the animal offerings, those that would be offered on this altar, the bronze altar, they all begin the same way. How do they begin? If you're offering an animal to God, how does that offering begin? You bring it to the door of the tabernacle, and then put your hands on its head as a, as a as a symbol of identification with the animal, and in the case of sin offerings, transferring your sin symbolically to the animal, and then what do you do? You kill it. The worshiper killed the animal. He lays his hands, his hands on the head of the animal as it's at the tabernacle doorway, and he kills the animal. And then the priest takes it from there. The priest takes care of the offering from there. That's worth noting. Second, Notice that every animal offering is to be given to God of clean animals without defect. It had to be a certain kind of animals, cows, goats, or sheep, and it had to be without defect, perfect offerings. Also notice the different offerings are associated with different purposes. The burnt offering is said to be about atonement. It's to make atonement in general. 
Remember atonement, we're talking about covering. The grain offering, its purpose is not directly stated, but it appears to be offer, associated with dedication or trust. I know God will provide for me. The peace offering is associated with fellowship, thankfulness, and fulfillment of vows. It was the only offering in which the worshiper himself could eat some of the meat of the sacrifice. And then the sin and the guilt offerings, they have the same association. They were about purification. They were about covering for unintentional but specific sins. Interestingly, those offerings for unintentional sins, what kind of offering could be offered for an intentional sin, a defiant sin? Does anyone know? None, actually. There's no offering for a defiant, a sin with a high hand that says that person is to be cut off from his people. It's kind of interesting. That's Numbers 15, verses 30 to 31. One other thing to note, for the sin offering, we're talking about the, if a, if a priest sins or if the congregation sins, there are certain certain steps that have to be taken. But while the fat is burned on the bronze altar, where is most of the animal burned? Outside the camp. The priest is to take the animal, the rest of the flesh, take it outside the camp and burn it in a clean place. That's for the sin offering offered for the priest or for the congregation. Hang on to that question, Greg. So we, can, we could say more about the different offerings. But I just wanted you to notice those few things because they're all really relevant for when we talk about Christ. But back to our chart. What's the practical purpose of this bronze altar? What's it for? It's to give an acceptable place to offer sacrifices, an acceptable offer for sacrifices to God. What does this show us about God? Well, some of the things we've already seen. God is majestic. He deserves the best. God is holy. Man needs covering. And God only accepts perfect sacrifices. We also see God is merciful. He has provided a way for man's sins to be covered, for his holiness to be um, propitiated. And he's provided a way for fellowship to continue with him and his people. How do these things connect to Christ? Pretty obvious, right? Christ is our offering. Well, he's not only the offering. He's also the priest, the perfect priest who offers the offering. He's the perfect offering priest, sacrifices perfectly on behalf of his people, but he is also the perfect offering who once and for all obtained covering for those who believe in him. And he... He's the ultimate fulfillment of each kind of offering. Think about the burnt offering. He provides perfect atonement. Think about the grain offering. He's the perfect provision from God. Think about the peace offering. He's what brings you your reconciliation. He's what allows you to have fellowship with God, pictured in the fellowship meal of the, fellowship, or of the peace offering. And as the sin and the guilt offering, Jesus was taken outside the camp and offered once and for all to cleanse us of all of our specific sins. Christ is the reason that God allowed animals to have any covering effect in the first place. For truly, 
There's nothing righteous about an animal free from defect. There's no spiritual power to that. It was only because these animals suited God as pictures of a greater sacrifice that God permitted temporary covering to be obtained through these. We don't have time to talk about it right now, but Hebrews 10, 1 to 10, explains the blood of bulls and goats is never able to make one clean. But God provided a better sacrifice that did it once and for all. If you have other questions about the bronze altar or the different offerings, come see me afterwards. We're out of time for today. Also, again, I encourage you to do your own study about the the bronze laver, the anointing oil, the garments of the priests, because I think you'll discover similar things to what we've already talked about in today's lesson. Next week, we move on to year two in the Answered Bible Curriculum, the first quarter of the second year, and we're going to pick it back up with Joshua and God's call to Joshua. If you sign up for a workbook for next quarter, please see me after I pray so I can give that to you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I want to say so much more about the offerings, the altar, and the different elements of the tabernacle. But, Lord, I praise you for this look. That's so sweet. God, that you have brought us inside the veil. We didn't deserve it. We were totally unclean, and you made us clean. You gave us your holiness, and then you brought us into the most holy place. Of course, God, you have called us also to live holy lives in light of that. We are not saved so that we can continue to sin. But Lord, we do thank you that a once and for all sacrifice has justified us because we do believe in you. You've caused us to believe in you. Believe in you. You've made a way and brought us to yourself and you will bring us to yourself just as you prayed. You wanted us to see your glory and to be with you where you are. We praise you for that, God. Let more praise and Understanding resound this morning as we continue our service. In Jesus' name, amen.